Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Wayne Wang, director of several films, including Chan is Missing, The Joy Luck Club, Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart, Smoke, Blue in the Face, Made in Manhattan, Last Holiday Because of Winn-Dixie, one other thing, before there was Ang Lee or Justin Lin, there was Wayne Wang, and we'll get into that in the interview. There is a retrospective of Wayne Wang's work at Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive, and you can see specific dates by going to bampfa.org, their program online. Most of these films are either free on Canopy or Hoopla, the library apps, or on Showtime, which is where Smoke is, or rentable from anywhere. Before we begin, Wayne Wang, I want to ask you a little bit about your earlier career. You had a wonderful short interview with Dennis Lim on uh, the Criterion app, in which you talk there about how you started out. You were born and raised in Hong Kong, but you left Hong Kong in 67 to come to America to go to medical school. But in the interview, you said you also left because at the time, Hong Kong was experiencing a lot of problems. At the time, the radical left wing of Hong Kong, which is mostly influenced by what's going on with Cultural Revolution in China, and also with the whole world actually going through a lot of protests and demonstrations. So Hong Kong was having a bad time with some strikes that were going on with uh, the working class. And it turned into bombs and turned into pretty violent uh, demonstrations and protests. So that's when my parents said, you know, we're going to send you to the U.S. Now, you didn't get along that great with your parents either, right? Because you talked about that in that interview. They were, you know, hard to get along with, so to speak. I respect my parents. I love my parents. But they're from the old school Chinese way of bringing up kids and whatnot. Very authoritarian. So I had a tough time with that. I guess there's a certain rebelliousness in me, but it was hard to express myself within that context. When you came to America and started medical school, that's when you discovered Pacific Film Archive and Tom Luddy and began going over to Berkeley to see films? I was going to school at the California College of Arts and Crafts. And I was studying to be a painter at the time. And the archive was beginning to show two films a night. And I just started going there practically every night or every other night. 
how do you get from medical school to the art school? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Yeah, my dad wanted me to become a doctor. So I was at Foothill College in Los Altos, which was a pretty sleepy town in those days. And I started taking undergrad medical-related classes, but I was also taking general education classes such as art history and painting, and I just fell in love with art. So I told my parents that I wanted to study art history and also learn how to paint and blah, blah, blah. I had a very good teacher in painting, actually, who was encouraging me to go into it because he felt I had a talent for painting. So you began going to PFA and you were still going to school. At what point did you begin to work on A Man, A Woman, and A Killer? And how did that come about? I got my painting degree for my undergraduate work. So I have a bachelor in painting. And then for graduate school, Arts and Crafts actually started a film department. And I became a grad student studying for my master's in filmmaking. I, you know, really wanted to, to make a film. I was making some short films and then two other grad students that I was, you know, very friendly with. And we got together and we said, well, why don't we chip in our money, chip in our creativity and just make a feature length film and hence a man, a woman and a killer. Can anybody see that anymore? Is that available anywhere? That is available. One of the directors and, and screenwriters, his name is, is Rick Schmidt. He distributes those films by himself, actually. So you can find it if you go online, I think. And how do you feel about it now? Does it show any of what we would come in later terms, you know, kind of call Wayne Wang's image of the world? Or is it just kind of a student film? It's not a student film. It's not a great film. But it's an interesting experimental film is how I would describe it. It's very abstract. It has a narrative that goes around in circles more than just kind of, you know, beginning, middle and end. I don't understand it even now. I have no idea what the film is about, except that it is about a man, a woman and a killer. In making a man, a woman and a killer, you knew there were no directors of Asian or Chinese-American descent working either in Hollywood or I think independently. So you were stepping out on a limb at the start. What were your thoughts about that, particularly in terms of, as you talk about in Chan is Missing, invisibility of Asians? You know, I consider Chan is Missing being the real first film. A Man, a Woman, and a Killer was a graduate student project. So in that sense, I don't feel like being Chinese or Chinese-American is special. I'm just another student trying to do my graduate project. At that point, you were obviously heavily influenced by the films you've seen, French New Wave, Italian films. Had you also been watching a lot of noir? That was more growing up. As a kid, my dad was a big Hollywood film fan. And so every weekend he would take us to watch 
whether it's John Wayne, whom I'm named after, or film noir, or, you know, action films or whatever. So I saw a lot of great films actually growing up. Then in film history classes in graduate school, I also got more into film noir. So that sort of was my education there in a, on a deeper level. So after that, is that when you went to Hong Kong and worked in television before coming back to make Chan is Missing? Yes. When I finished my master's degree, I went back to Hong Kong, and that was actually just when some of the so-called Hong Kong New Wave directors, most of them studied you know, abroad and went back also, and a lot of them were, were working uh, with the local PBS, which is called RTHK. And they had a really popular soap opera at the time called Below the Lion Rock. And I got a job sort of as an assistant apprentice or whatever you want to call it, working there for one summer. And basically, I got fired after one summer. How'd you get fired? Well, because I was, <laughs> I remember, you know, reading about the French New Wave and how Godard and Truffaut and all those guys said, you know, you shouldn't be shooting films just in the studio. You should take the camera out into the streets and make more authentic, realistic films. So I was pushing for them to get out of the studio onto the streets and that was the big thing that they didn't like because the series was very popular already. So to change anything they thought would um, would change the series too much stylistically. So I, I did, I remember shooting one episode actually handheld on the streets and they just hated it. And these days, if it survived, People would be looking at it and going, wow, that's the best episode in the series. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so you came back to the U.S. How long did it take you before you began gathering the people and creating the idea of Chan is Missing? Uh, it took two or three years, actually, I think. I'm trying to remember the exact dates, but... You know, basically, I came back, I couldn't get a job in whether it's TV or film, because those days, it was really hard to get any kind of real job in, in that field. I went into Chinatown. It was during the Jimmy Carter era. There were a lot of funding for new immigrants. So I got a job teaching English and helping immigrants get employment when they first come over. And it was a really good job. So I, I, I worked there for two or three years and I met a lot of people in Chinatown and I became kind of a member of the community at the time. Wayne Wang, at that point, you you start thinking about, I'm going to create an independent film. I understand you did it on virtually nothing, like fifteen or $16,000. Well, when I was working there, I was not thinking about making a film. I wanted to, but I, I didn't know quite how to even do it. My roommate, Rick Schmidt, who uh, I made A Man and Woman and a Killer, just said, yeah, go rob a bank or something if you want it that bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I didn't know how to do it. I, um, I was taking a lot of notes because I, I felt that I, I could use all these characters and all, all these stories one day. So 
after I quit working there, I basically, you know, became unemployed and I trained to do marathons actually at that time. And I started putting together these notes and I was applying for grants. And luckily I got an NEA grant, which was 12,500 or something like that. Uh, and I said, well, this is enough. This is, I don't have to rob a bank. I think I can start making this film. Did you know that you were going to turn into, into this documentary pseudo-noir? Well, pseudo-noir was the first criterion. I sort of wrote the structure and the story based on a pseudo-noir. But I also liked, as I said earlier, the the French New Wave in terms of what they did with handheld cameras on the streets and trying to capture a reality of what's in the world. Uh, and since I, you know, know Chinatown and worked in it and and really wanted to show what Chinatown really looked like, I went into more of a documentary feel in terms of how we shot the film. Well, I noticed that much like La Ventura, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> you, you know, there's no, you never find Chan. <laughs> yeah. That that was kind of inspired by La Ventura. I remember watching that film at the archive and I said, oh, that's great. You can actually make a movie and you don't have to have have a real clear ending as to what happened to this guy. So that was the first inspiration for Chan. And of course, Chan refers to Charlie Chan. Mm -hmm. What was interesting for me watching the film is that I got caught up in watching the backgrounds of San Francisco in 1981 because I've never seen a documentary that really shows what the city was. And it's there and Chan is missing. Have you gone back and watched it recently? Yes, I've watched it. Well, Criterion showed it recently and I watched it when I turned over the, the version that I, that I gave them. And I watch it from beginning to end, which was kind of fun to see it again now. And I agree. I mean, it really captures uh, not only San Francisco in the background, but really captures Chinatown, you know, during that period. The other thing I noticed, and it, it seems to go through a lot of your movies in different ways. At first, it's just Chinese and Chinese Americans, but it's there even maybe accidentally and made in Manhattan, where you're looking at people from various ethnic groups and trying to figure out what makes them American and what makes them their ethnic group. This seems to be something that runs through all of your films. Is it on your mind all the time or is it something that kind of slips up from the unconscious? A little bit of both, I would say. At a certain point, I wanted to kind of get away from so-called just Chinese American material. I wanted to look at not only San Francisco, but other urban cities. I wanted to look at other ethnic groups, other ethnic communities. And some of it was unconscious and some of it was kind of planned. Like for example, smoke was definitely kind of more a planned one because it was made right after Joy Luck Club, and I wanted to get away definitely from the Chinese-American stories and look at 
New York at the time where I actually felt that I belonged because it was kind of like Hong Kong in, in America. Uh, and I ended up uh, working with Paul Oster and he showed me Brooklyn and we shot most of the film actually in Brooklyn. The external shot of the smoke shop that's actually was in Park Slope, but the internal part was in the studio? Yes, correct. Oh, wait, sorry. No, the internal part was actually in the storefront. The exact address, I don't remember, but the address that's on the film is made up, actually. So the exact address was somewhere else in Park Slope. It's further down in a more seedier area. And it was a U.S. post office that would just close down and we took it over and turned it into a smoke shop. Back in the 90s, uh, it was a really popular film in Japan. A lot of Japanese tourists actually took the address that was on the film and went to look for the smoke shop and they never found it. <laughs> There's a, a shot, a more long distance shot of the area, which is right at the tip of Prospect Park. And that was about four blocks from where a friend of mine lives that I visit when I go every when I go back to New York every ah, summer. So you you know that there is sort of a discrepancy between where the reality shop is, so to speak, and, and what's shown on the address in the shots that, that Harvey Keitel actually took. Unlike the San Francisco of Chinatown, which is in 82, which is kind of, I mean, you go into Chinatown, it's not that different now. I don't know about the Hong Kong of, say, Chinese box or life is cheap, but the Brooklyn of Park Slope now is completely gentrified. Yes, true. There's a big difference there. And actually, Chinatown in San Francisco has changed somewhat. It's not that noticeable, you know, from the front, but you know, a lot of mainland Chinese people have taken over and created storefronts that are a little different from before. And also, you won't see this also from the surface. There are a lot of IT guys actually before the pandemic all moved into Chinatown because it was cheap, it was convenient, they can walk right down to financial district. So there is like a change going on behind it all. Wayne Wang Chan is missing. Yeah, we're going to go back in the sequence again of the films I made. Yeah. First of all, it was an Asian cast set in Chinatown, and it was a commercial film set for distribution. So what were your thoughts in making it and in finding a way to distribute it? And did you get any discrimination at that point? Well, China's Missing, again, is quite unique in that it was a national endowment for the arts grant that got me started. And then it was an American Film Institute grant that finished it. And there were no thoughts of making that into a commercial distributed film. I wanted to just make the film, make it the way I wanted to, and... The least I could do is maybe show it to my friends or show it at some museum. But there were no, no pretensions of getting distribution on it. Dim sum, a little bit of heart. In that interview on Criterion, that's kind of based on the life of the actress playing the daughter? Yes. I met Laureen Chu in Chinatown working there. 
I knew his boss very well. She was teaching at San Francisco State in the Asian American Studies Department. I met her. I found her really interesting. I met her whole family. I also found her mother extremely interesting. She cooked very well, and she cooked a lot of dinner for us. <laughs> I originally was going to make a film with some other Chinese American women also in the story, but I became so interested in Lorene and her mother that we ended up sort of tailoring the script more to just a mother and daughter story. So all the other characters kind of went to the background a little bit more. The mother in the movie is is an actress. It wasn't the real mother, right? No, she wasn't an actress. She was the real mother. She knew nothing about acting. She was actually babysitting during the day while we were shooting there in her house. So when we needed her to be on set, we would say, "Mama Chu, could you come down?" And we have to start shooting now. So she would leave her babysitting. One of the production assistants would go babysit, and then she came down to just be in the scene. Was the house in in the Richmond, like in the film? Yes, Nineteenth Avenue, I think, in the Richmond. Everything was real in a way. It was shooting a documentary, sort of with a pretty detailed script. Actually, we Terrell Seltzer and I we went to their house for like a few weeks, sort of giving them a lot of questions and taping them, and we. We sort of regurgitated back what they would say to each other in certain situations. So it was kind of scripted, but it was also very documentary. And some of the leftover footage became dim sum takeout. Yes, like I said, I started out wanting to make a film about actually one, two, three, four, five different women, including Joan Chen and my wife Cora Miao. But I realized I just couldn't deal with it, and I was much more interested in Laureen Chu and her mother. So I ended up not using a lot of the footage, and I cut a short film called Dim Sum Takeout, which is going to be at the Pacific Film Archive too. Now Chan is missing is very political, and Dim Sum is not, and I guess that was a kind of conscious decision. Well. It's conscious in the sense that I've always believed that everything is political. How you decide to deal with your mother, how you decide to deal with your family, how you deal with yourself as a human being is political. I mean, that's why my films are often not directly political, but I feel that they're very important and political in their own ways. Wayne Wang. Then came Slam Dance,、mm-hmm. which means that you were approached by a studio. That's the first kind of studio film that you made, or or do I have that wrong? It wasn't really a studio film. It was a hybrid. It was kind of financed by a small studio at the time, by Island Films, actually. And they were doing what I would call an independent film, but it had some actors in it that were known, and it was kind of a pseudo independent art film, I guess I would call it. And I understand in that one that there were some serious issues with the producers between you and the producers. 
I don't think there were serious disputes or disagreements. I think I myself wanted to to be even braver and to break more of so-called traditional filmmaking with slam dance, but they were constantly worried about making making a more commercial film. And there was some kind of what you would call a studio head and he was always kind of uh, watching over us a bit. You know, I had to make a lot of compromises, but then it was also sort of a very strange, very free in its own way, but also very controlled to a certain degree. The producers were more independent producers and less so-called studio, you know, people. So I knew that I could make a more independent free-form film, maybe with with some experimentations, but I also knew that I would have to deal with uh, a commercial distribution. But I wanted to work in that system just to understand how all of this works. And it's a good step of being in between, so to speak, the studio system and the independent system. It's an interesting cult film. You know, I often talk to people and they said, oh, this is this is a great film and you have to see this. Actually, it was shown at Cannes when it was first finished and it was really well received in, in Cannes. I guess it's a very European film in that sense. Eat a Bowl of Tea is the last film you discuss with Dennis Lim uh, in the Criterion interview. And in that one, you say you were intending to kind of make it look like a Hollywood musical without the music, that you were trying to be more of a Hollywood director for that one. Correct. Edibility is based on a classic Chinese-American novel. I really liked the story of it because it was about how New York Chinatown was basically becoming a male-centric uh, society because of immigration laws, the Chinese couldn't bring their wives or bring women easily into the country until the GI Bill and and the Chinese who were in the U.S. military service and came back, they could actually do that. So that was a change for Chinatown, and it was an important period for Chinese American history. I wanted to, you know, in a way, get away from the documentary aspect. Because one of the things I also loved when I was growing up that my dad brought me to were a lot of Hollywood musicals. I wanted to make a sort of a Hollywoodish film with some music, but not a lot of music. And I wanted to kind of make a, in a way, a dramatic comedy that was more sort of mainstream. I wanted to see whether it was possible to take Chinese-American cast and crew and turn it into something that was more mainstream. When you're going from film to film, because here, putting aside for a second, life is cheap, we begin moving into the area where you're sort of moving more toward the mainstream. Do they approach you for some of these films, or how did it work when you finally went fully mainstream for that period, when you did films like Last Holiday because of Winn-Dixie and Made in Manhattan? 
I would say most of the films that I made with Hollywood Studios, they approached me, except for one, which you are actually leaving out called uh, Anywhere But Here. Anywhere But Here, I read the script through my agency and I really loved the script. It was a script by Alvin Sargent and it was a very well-read book also. And I really wanted to make that one that I and I went after it myself. But all the other ones, Winn-Dixie, you know, Made in Manhattan, Last Holiday were all approached by either producers or studios from Hollywood. The first Hollywood film was Joy Luck Club, also a slight hybrid in some sense. Jeffrey Katzenberg of, uh, you know, Disney actually really liked the script and he loved the book and the book was a bestseller. But it is a movie about Chinese and Chinese Americans. And we made it for a very limited budget, a budget of an independent film. So again, it was kind of a hybrid, but the distribution was really a big studio distribution. And it went through the normal process of previews and recutting because of the previews and then big publicity, you know, throwing money at trying to get the film out. So I was beginning to really step into studio film. After seeing all of the films that are in this retrospective and then Made in Manhattan, I kept looking, is there anything which is Wayne Wang there? Or is it just you saying, hey, I can make a solid Hollywood film? I think there's always something Wayne Wang there. There might be different from what you would expect, you know, if you know Chan is missing or dim sum. I mean, every film that I make, it's about people. The move to Hollywood was kind of conscious. Like I said, you know, I wanted to get away from the Chinese American material. I wanted to do a more mainstream film and get more of an audience to watch it. I would consider Smoke a studio film because it was made by Miramax. But I made a conscious choice that even though I step into that world, I want to still deal with subject matters that really were close to my heart. And if you look at these films carefully, Smoke is about a group of people who were pretty isolated, but they form an informal family. So again, it is about family. Like if you look at all my films, my Chinese American films, it's always about family and family relationships. So then there was Anywhere But Here, written by Mona Simpson, and that one is actually a mother and daughter story. Susan Sarandon and Natalie Portman playing mother and daughter, in a way, it's a different version of Dim Sum. It's about a Uh, a mother who wants to go to Hollywood and she wants to make it in Hollywood and wants her daughter to make it. And there's a lot of conflict between mother and daughter. So it's about the humanity between the two. And it's always about that. Uh, Then there was Wayne Dixie by Kate DiCamillo. And that film was about a father and a daughter. And then Made in Manhattan. Actually, a lot of the emphasis was about mother and daughter, and then Jennifer Lopez as a mother with her son. So again, all of these films 
really focus a lot on the human relationships, on family relationships. Did you experience anybody saying to you, well, you can only make Chinese films? Did that ever come up or were you given the freedom that any white director might be given? Well, nobody was blatant enough to say you're a Chinese and these are not Chinese films. But I could feel, for example, the the kind of uh, attitude that they had. So they would ask me questions like, yeah, but this script is about you know, middle America and everyone is, is American. So what do you think of that? Uh, so that's the way that they kind of got across their prejudice, so to speak. And I would always answer, I say, you know, I've been in America by that time, you know, more than half of my life and been there more than 20 some years. And I said to them, well, why do you hire somebody like Ridley Scott, who's not American? You know, he's English. Uh, so what is the difference? Or why do you hire some other foreign directors, which they were quite happy to do it at that time, but never sort of think twice about where they were from and what cultures they were from? Did the fact that Ang Lee made Sense and Sensibility, did that aid you a little bit in uh, in getting your point across? Uh, maybe in the second half of so-called my Hollywood career. I had already started in my, you know, Hollywood career by that time with Jola Club, Smoke, you know, uh, anywhere but here. So I think I, I already had kind of stepped into that minefield, so to speak. And then he came along and with Sense and Sensibility, did help to uh, broaden that world. And what about the rise of Hong Kong films like Hard Boiled? Did that have any effect on the fact that suddenly America was seeing more Chinese films? You know, I enjoyed watching those films myself. I was happy that these films were also, you know, getting some kind of notoriety in Hollywood, so to speak. You know, people like John Wu and Chow Yun-Fat was able to come over here to work. But I was not interested in that type of film. You know, I was more interested in, in let's say, Edward Yang or Ho Xiaoxian or Zhang Yimou and some of their films, because again, they were more about humanity. They were more about relationships between people. I'm not so much about the violence and the action and the gangsters uh, that are portrayed in, let's say, Hard Boiled. How is it working with the bigger budgets? Because I guess that started with Joy Luck Club. Well, Joy Luck Club was a studio film, but it was very low budget again. I mean, Joy Luck Club was, was a really popular book. It was, you know, the best selling book for two years in a row or something. But we wrote a script on spec and we went around to the studios and nobody would want to make it because it's all Chinese American, all the complete Chinese American cast. In the end, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was at Disney at the time, read the script and really liked it. And he said, if you can make it for, for a price, which is almost like an independent low budget price, he said he would make it. So in a way, it's more like an independent film, low budget. 
it's quite an extraordinary cast. I mean, very young Ming-Na Wen. Mm -hmm. I understand that there might have been issues with Gong Li and others about speaking English. Is that right? Yes, there were all kinds of problems like that. You know, I really wanted to make sure that that everyone spoke English that you can understand at the time, so I didn't have to dub them. And Gong Li was just starting out, and she was a fabulous actress, but she her English was really, really, you know, bad at the time. There were also expectations about other actresses, but I didn't want to cast so predictably. So we really went, you know, auditioning for people that were unknowns, like Ming-Na Wang. That was her first film. But you also found France Nguyen, who'd been around in the 50s. Right. I saw her in South Pacific, the movie version. I always loved her work. I wanted to meet her, actually, initially, because I thought maybe she could play the mother. Uh, and I met her, and I thought she would be fabulous, you know, as the mother. And we just cast her after that. Easy. That was the easy one. You said that you'd created a screenplay, so you'd already met Amy Tan at that point? I read the book. I loved the book. Amy and I had tea, and we talked about making a movie from it, and that's how it all started. And she said, oh, well, let me think about it, but you would be the right person to do it. But I don't want to write it, I think, initially, she said that. But anyway, things sort of evolved from there, and eventually she actually wrote the first version of the script. Watching it, you can see the compression because it could have easily been a miniseries, I thought. Absolutely. And I think that we have to give a lot of credit to, to Ron Bass, who was the other writer for it. And he knew that structurally it would be very difficult to compress it and he actually thought it through, wrote the whole structure out very, very specifically. And that's, you know, what, what he did first. And then he gave that to Amy and he, and he told Amy, take this structure and write the script from there. He went as, as detailed as, you know, the scene between Ming-Na and her mother is two and a half pages long. It cannot be longer. And this is what the scene is about. So anyway, he was very specific with that structure. You actually went to China to film parts of it? Yes. Originally, we were going to film most of it in China. And then the production designer and the production team and I went to China, I think, two or three different times. And this is back in the uh, 80s where China was just opening up. And we... We saw all the problems of filming in China. And we also saw that a lot of the potential sets were either fake or ruined. The production designer came back and finally said, just to, just to sort of avoid some of the trouble of filming there, why don't we just build the sets here? Because I took enough pictures, I could kind of duplicate everything and duplicate it better. Well, the result is gorgeous. Do you use the same cinematographer for most of these or different ones? I use the same cinematographer and I use the same production designer. So the, the cinematographer is, a, is an Iranian-American called Amir Mokri, and uh, the production designer is called Donnie Burt. Did you personally do all the editing on that one? 
Well, I supervised all of it. I never actually edited myself physically because yeah, I did that with Chana's Missing. It was the only film that I edited physically myself. But I pretty soon realized that you know, I could be more useful if someone else was struggling with the problems day in and day out, and I could walk in and be more objective about, you know, what's working and what's not working. Joy Luck Club was unique in having all of these great Asian actresses, and that sets it apart. These women should have been working more, but they were not. Did you hear anything from them about the difficulties they had? There were a lot of talks, both during the casting sessions and then also during the shooting, that all these very talented actresses were basically being ignored. Or if they got any work, it was probably some cameo appearance or some of them like... uh, like Rosalind Chow was able to do some TV series work, but as a as a more supporting character. Wayne Wang, how'd you meet Paul Auster and also assembling a cast that involved people like William Hurt and Harvey Keitel, let alone the other actors? Mm-hmm. How did you wind up meeting him and come up with the idea for doing a film together? I read on Christmas Day an op-ed piece that he wrote which is called Augie Rent's Christmas Story or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but it's about Augie Rent, which is the Harvey Keitel character. And I remember reading it and I said, this would make a really, really good film. And I really wanted, like I said, to work in the East Coast in New York or, you know, somewhere around the five boroughs in New York. So I figured out a way to contact Paul Oster. We met, we talked quite a few times, and we decided he was going to write the script and we were going to do Smoke based on Augie Wren's story. Paul Oster's idea was that he would take some of the characters from Augie Wren's Christmas story and, and, and put them into Smoke, which is a you know, more complicated story than Augie Wren. The original script was really long and really complicated. We had to keep trimming it down, trimming it down. William Hurt came into it because I think he read the script and he really liked it and he liked the character. He wanted to do it. So who else? I mean, at that time, William Hurt was probably one of the most accomplished and brilliant actors around. One of the interesting aspects of Smoke is that it has Ashley Judd, who had just done a couple of films, but also Giancarlo Esposito, who was unknown, and Jared Harris, who you wouldn't know was an accomplished British performer and the son of Richard Harris. Right. Who brought them in? Jared Harris also appears briefly in Chinese Box. I met a really good casting agent called Heidi Levitt when I was doing Joy Love Club. I asked her to help me cast Smoke. She is really, really, really into finding the right actors for these parts. And she came up with a lot of those cast members. And for Blue in the Face, you you had some extra days that you'd already paid for and managed to convince the studio to give you money? Well, we finished the film actually three days or two days ahead of schedule 
and ahead of budget. And because Smoke was such a controlled movie, so to speak, you know, every word was written out and the actors played it like a theater piece. I just felt like we should let the patients go out of the mental institution and go free. So we took the budget that was left. We took the set, which was a smoke shop, and we invited all kinds of Uh, Well, we had some of the same actors that's in Smoke, but then we invited other actors to guest premiere for one day or half a day. So Madonna came in, Michael J. Fox came in, Jin Jamouche came in, you know, Roseanne Barr came in, everybody. (laughs) Do you think uh, Jim Jarmusch has played a role in the films that you've made? Do you kind of see yourself using some of his techniques in a way? Absolutely. I was a big fan of Jim Jarmusch. I remember watching Stranger Than Paradise, his first film, and I was really, really impressed with it, and it influenced me a lot. And I really like a sense of humor. We shared the same agent also at the time when we did it blue in the face, and my agent said, well, you should ask Jim if he wants to well, wants to come come on set and just do do something. So I did, and he agreed to do it. And how did Lou Reed come into it? That was a connection from Paul Oster. I think they were friends. So we said, well, why don't we put Lou behind the de- uh, behind the, the store and have him be, you know, talking about cigarettes and everything else. A movie that I had heard of and not seen, Chinese Box. I watched it in awe. It's a great film. Mm, I really liked the film, too. I really wanted to make a film about the changeover in Hong Kong in 1997. I wanted to document what would be going on, you know, right before the changeover and then during the changeover. I convinced Jeremy Irons to be to play a journalist during this period. And we had half of a script, so to speak, with Jean-Claude Clarier and uh, Larry Gross, actually. And one of the ideas was that we would take this half of a script, go to Hong Kong before the changeover, and Clarier and Larry Gross would come with me and also make up, you know, the other half of the script while we were... Uh, shooting and preparing for the film. So that's what happened. And, you know, the the half of the script that was written was a love story between Gong Li and Jeremy Irons, which is, you know, predictable and it's a love story. But then we wanted to put the love story within this changeover period. And the other half was all sort of made up on the day. There's also the curious confluence of the journalist played by Irons and his illness and the turnover to China, almost representing death in both cases. So it was always there. That part was there. It was always there. And it was, uh, in a way, very predictatory of what what will happen to Hong Kong. I mean, if you know and follow what happened to Hong Kong in the last, since 1997, actually, but more drastically within the last, you know, two or three years, you know that, you know, basically a lot of what we 
we're trying to express is all all happening. Wayne Wang, life is cheap, but toilet paper is expensive. That's from 1989, and you've revised it multiple times, most recently for PFA. It reminds me, it's the closest thing I think to Chan is missing among all your other films. Why do you keep revising it? You mean keep recutting it? Yeah. Only because I can. (laughs) Well, you know, these days, first of all, the technology has gotten very accessible and and cheaper. So I can actually take the film and, and keep cutting it. I can cut it until, you know, I die, basically. Because the film was so, so free form anyway. The idea was basically built around a lot of stories that we've read when we filmed Eat a Bowl of Tea in Hong Kong and a lot of, you know, direct experiences of living there and filming that film there too. So it was based on these personal experiences and new stories from Hong Kong, trying to tell a more freeform story of Hong Kong. And it has a lot of portrait-like scenes where people kind of talk right into camera about themselves or about the city. Again, just like Chan, behind it all is kind of a not-noir, or, (laughs) you know, a pseudo-noir, if you want to call it that. So you've got that same thing, only you've got a MacGuffin that isn't even a MacGuffin. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the same thing. The same idea of La Ventura where you don't have to, you know, answer all the questions or answer even the main questions, but you set up a MacGuffin and the MacGuffin is doing something else, which is showing you interesting eccentric characters from Hong Kong and telling the story of Hong Kong itself. So like Chan, it was telling the story of of, uh, Chinatown, San Francisco. After your time in Hollywood, you decided to come back and create more stories about Chinese. That means meeting Yi Yun Lee. Uh, had you known her before? How did that come about? Actually, Last Holiday was the so-called last you know, Hollywood film that I made. I got really tired of doing these Hollywood films, and Last Holiday really did it for me. It's a really good film. I really love it, but I had enough of working in Hollywood. So I wanted to go back to the Chinese American material. And I started reading all kinds of things. And Yi Yong Li's books and short stories were some of the most interesting things I've read in a long time at that time. And so I asked her in A Thousand Years of Good Prayers of one of the short stories in her first book, And I said to her, can you adapt this and we make a movie out of it? In the same way, I worked with Paul Auster, hence A Thousand Years of Good Prayers. And Princess of Nebraska? Yes. Princess of Nebraska was also kind of the A-side, B-side thing again. (laughs) The A-side is Thousand Years. And then this one was a little different. I raised a little bit of money from CAM, which is an Asian American arts uh, group here. And I said, well, why don't we take Princess of Nebraska and make a more freeform film from that? And we did. So we we shot it at the same time. Well, when you came out of the Hollywood thing, 
how did you deal with distribution? Because suddenly you were an, uh, an independent filmmaker. These later films aren't as available as the early ones. That is a problem. I mean, it's hard. Even when Thousand Years was made, it was hard to get distribution because independent films were becoming more limited and videotapes were going out of the market. So it was hard to get them distributed. Thousand Years of Good Prayers was actually won the San Sebastian Award for Best Film, and that helped to kind of launch it and get a distributor in the U.S. Snowflower and the Secret Fan, I've interviewed Lisa C. three or four times, and I think that was for the first time I wanted to see it, and then I couldn't. You couldn't see it? It's available. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's on both Blu-ray and DVD, I think. That was a difficult film. I think partially I'm responsible to. By deciding that I want to add a contemporary part of the story to Lisa C's book, and then we had to create the contemporary part of the story, and that was not easy to make that work. And then shooting in China was really, really difficult. So I basically had a mess on my hands when I got back here to edit, and I never quite came out of it. But I still respect the film. There are wonderful things in it. I respect Lisa C's book, but it's got problems. Did you ever think about going back to that one and trying to rearrange the pieces? Well, actually, I did completely recut the film. I actually lost almost all the contemporary scenes. So there's very little bit of it to kind of just hold the film together. You know, Hugh Jackman is in the contemporary piece, and and I even managed to cut him out in my own version. Is the version that's out in the world now that version? No. So that version is not anywhere, actually. We thought about screening it at the PFA, but then there are just too many films, so we had to make some choices, and it didn't make it in. So at some point that will come out, I would assume. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, after that, there was a documentary on food called Soul of a Banquet, but IMDb lists a Japanese film and a South Korean film that have come out in the last couple of years. Are those available anywhere in the U.S.? Let's see. Soul of a Banquet is available. It should be available through Oscilloscope, which is distributing it. I've seen it on Amazon if you stream it. The Japanese film is called While the Women Are Sleeping. That one is not available anywhere except for Japan. It actually has B. Takeshi in the lead. It's a really, really odd film. It's about voyeurism. And it's, it's really, I kind of, you know, went off the deep end. But I really liked the film, but nobody would touch it. Do you feel okay that that's not part of the retrospective then? Well, I don't think... Anyone would dare show it. Really? Yeah. And what about, what is it, Coming Home Again? Coming Home Again is quite available. Earlier on this year, I just got a couple of DVDs. So it's out there somewhere, so you can find it if you look for it. What's that one about, and how do you feel about it? Well, that one is based on Chang Wei Li's short story called Coming Home Again. It was actually one of his early writings in The New Yorker. 
I really love the story. I personally kind of identify with a lot of aspects of it. It's about a young man who was working in, at Wall Street, and his mother, who lives in San Francisco, gets cancer and was in the, her later stages. So he uh, gave up his job to come back and take care of his mother. But the film all happens in one day and one night. Basically, it's the son cooking the New Year's Eve dinner for the mother uh, in the same way that she's always cooked for the for for her family and for him. So that's what the, what's about. It's about a lot about food and the local chef called Corey Lee, who's Korean. The the film is Korean American, not Chinese. A uh, local chef called Corey Lee actually worked pretty closely with us to design the whole food menu for it. Wayne Wang, since the pandemic and since Come Home Again, are you working on another film? Are you gathering, marshalling your forces for another film? What's going on? I've been working on a script for Netflix, actually. It's based on a book also. I, I won't talk about it because it's kind of not very good luck if I talk about it. But I've been working on different things. I'm really interested in doing a Chinese-American family TV series. So that's also one of the things I'm working on. Since, say, 2007, and most recently in the past five or seven years, we've seen an influx of these miniseries on Netflix and other streaming places. And I was curious, at what point did that attract you? Was that always in the back of your mind as it became clear that it was going to happen and a lot of directors are moving in that direction? Yeah, I spent a lot of time watching TV and film every night, actually. And I saw a lot of different TV series, some of them Chinese, some of them not, some of them from, from Japan, some of them from Taiwan, and some of them Korean. And I really became fascinated by the idea of doing a series. What did you think of Squid Game? I have not seen it, and I personally am not interested in it. I kind of know what it's about, so I'm not that interested in that kind of violence. Which of the shows that you watched that might not be generally known to the public from Korea or Japan that you would recommend? Japan, there's something on Netflix called Tokyo Girl. It's about a young woman from the countryside who goes to Tokyo to make it. And it's it's only one season, but it's really well done. And it gives you a really good idea of Tokyo and a really interesting character. There's also Midnight Diner, where there's a cook who opens at night. It's basically about a chef who opens at nine o'clock at night and all these night owls come in from different jobs and different worlds and it tells their story uh, at the same time. So it's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. We have a lot of Asian TV shows and we have directors like Justin Lin and a lot of actors. Do you think it's a permanent change that we're now going to see Asians on the screen and directing. And what about in the secondary roles behind the camera, like editing or cinematography? I think all of it has changed. It hasn't changed a lot, so to speak, 
Like, for example, at Netflix, they have a lot of Asian executives now, um, young ones, and they're not in very powerful positions yet. But there are some of them, and some of them are working in Asia. And with, they, with working in Asia, they can actually make some interesting, you know, TV or film. It's slowly making a dent in everything. So you would see, you know, Chinese names come up. You would see Korean films being shown. You might see a Hong Kong film being shown sometimes. Uh, so it's slowly kind of making its way into the mainstream. But I would say I wish it could be faster and more impactful. Uh, what about young Asian American filmmakers? Are those directors out there beside Justin Lin? Well, so far I could tell. I mean, there is somebody like Ali Wong, who's a stand-up comedian, and she made her, she directed, I think, her own film. I have not really seen too many out there. There's the Indian director Aziz Ansari. Because of all the so-called Asian directors working, I think he is probably the most talented uh, right now. So, and and it's good that he did a TV series. The series, from what I understand, was actually quite popular. It's called Master of None. Wayne Wang, you have this entire career. You're still working, and a lot of people write essays about your work. And you read those essays, and they talk about your ideas. How does that make you feel, and how does it make you feel if someone gets it completely wrong? I stopped reading them after a while, is what I do, because I think most critics really shouldn't be critics.、Uh, there might be one percent of them who really know、uh, what they're talking about, who really likes reading. And who really likes to watch films and could kind of understand films、uh, at a certain level, and I don't think there are too many of them. And most of the critics out there, I think it's it's all bullshit. So I stop reading them. If you're looking at your work, and someone said, you know, I don't have the time to watch all of Wayne Wang, and he goes in so many different directions. Name three Wayne Wang movies that you would recommend for others to watch. I would say, Chen is missing, Joy Luck Club, and Smoke. Maybe that would give them a pretty good, you know, well-rounded sense of what I do. And maybe if I could have one more, if I can have four, I would say Anywhere But Here also. But not Life Is Cheap. Not Life Is Cheap. I would. Choose between life is cheap and and Chen is missing and Chen is missing, I think in the end is probably a little more original and interesting. And I would add Chinese box to that. Okay, that's that's an important one too. But we would have to squeeze that one in too. One final question: You began your career having seen these great movies from Europe. The Antonioni's and Fellini's, and certainly the French New Wave. Today, in 2022, Wayne Wang, what do you think of the auteur theory? I completely buy the auteur theory. I live and die for it, even though sometimes it's very difficult. I really like the French system, where when you hire a director, you cannot even fire them. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Wayne Wang, 
who is at Pacific Film Archive with a retrospective, and you can go to BAMPFA, I think it's BAMPFA.org for more information on that. Uh, most of the films that we've talked about are available on Canopy, on Hoopla, on Showtime, and certainly they can be rented online. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 